Morning Energy Live. I'm your host, Andrew Gillick. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Danny Rice, CEO of Net Power. Danny, welcome to the webinar. Great to be here. Uh, Danny, like many of us in the industry, uh, we've been following your career since you were a kid. Uh, your father making sure there were enough Rice children to form an oil and gas executive team, each one receiving a different engineering degree. Although I think you got it easy having to do finance. Um, I think you even named one of your brothers after oil field service equipment. Derek, I don't know what the spelling was, but uh, kind of interesting there. But you know, 20 years in, and uh, the energy landscapes evolved a little bit from from where you started, and it seems like you've pivoted, uh, taking the reins here at Net Power. Um, so we're really excited to have you on the show today. But before we get started, uh, I want to start a new uh, part of Morning Energy Live, which I'm going to call the Speed Round, uh, and I'm going to ask you five questions so the folks on the show, uh, the folks listening in, can get to know the real Danny Rice. You ready? Okay. Oh, geez. What a way to start. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, this will be an easy one. What is your favorite color of hydrogen? Favorite color of hydrogen? Uh, whichever color gives us the lowest cost, lowest carbon intensity on a round-the-clock basis. Oof. Probably right. blue. Gonna... <laughs> Probably blue. I'm going to go with uh, blue. Uh, look, look that one up. All right. Sounds good. Blue. All right, very important question here uh, so people can get to know you. What uh, is your favorite sandwich? Uh, favorite sandwich? Lived in Pittsburgh for 12 years, so I'm going with a Permani Brothers sandwich. Mm. Any combination of meat with french fries and coleslaw. It's so good. Uh, it, sounds, it's, it sounds disgusting, but it's, it's, uh, it's quite memorable. All the doctors approve of that one. Um, all right, what was the first concert you ever went to? Uh, nine years old, uh, New Kids on the Block, growing up in Boston, hometown KOTB. band. I like it. All right. Mm -hmm. uh, next, um, apples or oranges? Uh, definitely apples. I can't stand the texture of oranges. Your hands all smell weird after, you know, you peel it, right? It's no good. That's it. Um, all right. One, one thing that you're afraid of? Uh... I don't like going in water where I, where I cannot see the bottom of the the sea floor, the lake floor. It's it's just terrifying to me. And it's probably from growing up in, in, in the Boston area, going to like the ocean, it's murky, and you just can't see the bottom. So you can't see crabs, you can't see eels, you can't see any of those things. So it just spooks me even to this day. So I so only go to more of a pool guy. Where I more of a pool guy. More of a pool guy and then the Caribbean. Or the Caribbean, sure. right, of course. All right. All right, bonus yeah. question. Tell me something I don't know about your brother Toby from when he was a kid. <laughs> about Toby? Yeah. Uh, Toby, of, of the four Rice brothers, Toby owns the record for most number of trips to the emergency room. Um, you know, uh, broken bones, stitches, you name it. Toby, Toby's probably doubled the rest of us. Like, one time I pushed Toby down the stairs in a laundry basket. <laughs> And he was like six. He was six. He was five years old. I was six years old. About halfway down the stairs, the laundry basket just flipped, and he flew like the remaining like ten stairs onto like this brick fireplace, broke hmm. broken arm, cut his face open. So he, he ended up getting you know three of those points towards the uh, the hospital award. 
right on in that one. one trip. That's pretty good. All right. Yeah, well, pretty good. I feel like uh, everyone listening in now has a pretty good sense of uh, <laughs> of who you are, and so now we can we can move on to the to the meat of the discussion. So lots of the different different directions we can go here, but let's start off big picture. Tell us about NetPower. Why is it special? And and maybe for some of the engineer junkies, give us some specifics on what Oxy combustion process is. Yeah. So so NetPower, what it is is it's a it's a company that was started about uh, 12 years ago, back in 2010, um, and, and they really came up with a, a really simple proposition, which was if we really want to eliminate emissions from uh, gas and coal-fired power generation, you really need to redesign the entire power generation cycle. So what NetPower has developed is an entirely new process to generate power from natural gas that just inherently captures the emissions as a result of not letting nitrogen into the combustion chamber. So you end up with just a pure stream of CO2 on the back end that's sequestration ready. Um, they've gone through, you know, taking this idea and then proving the idea at a demonstration plant outside of Houston, Texas from 2018 to 2021. Um, and now they're pivoting from proving this technology to now commercializing it. And that's kind of when I um, joined the company as we took the company public through Rice Acquisition Corp 2. I joined full time. We properly capitalized the business to be able to achieve this commercial vision. Um, and now we're really off to the races, really designing this utility scale plant. First one will be coming online this decade. Um, and then we're really going to be scaling to, you know, global commercialization thereafter. Uh, that's pretty exciting. Definitely uh, need projects like that to meet some of the ambitious net zero goals that we see out there. Um, and so what is it about today's energy economy that, that pushed you towards power and away from, you know, the molecules that you'd been dealing with? Is it the electrification of everything, decarbonization goals, or is it something else? Um, I think it was, it was, it was a combination of those two things. The, the electrification of everything certainly shifting more energy onto the grid and away from things like oil and indirect use of natural gas. Um, and the decarbonization goals are continuing to just pick up. They're becoming more and more ambitious, more and more aggressive. Um, but I think for us, the real reason what drove us towards the power piece, just seeing decarbonization and seeing power being the largest source of emissions in the world, it's, if you're trying to decarbonize, that's where you want to be because that's where you can have really the most meaningful impact on a global scale as well as at a national level here in the United States. But I think for us, Having lived through the shale boom within the United States where we saw U.S. natural gas go from being essentially a net importer of natural gas to becoming the largest producer in the world of natural gas, we saw not just tremendous growth in natural gas, but we also saw um, what happens when you displace coal-fired power generation with natural gas. You see meaningful emission reductions. And so from, you know, 2020, 2008 to 2020, we saw U.S. as one of the only countries in the world to see an absolute reduction in CO2 emissions. And it wasn't because of hydrogen. It wasn't because of solar. It wasn't because of nuclear. It wasn't because of wind. It was simply because of using natural gas more intelligently and natural gas being able to displace this coal-fired power generation, which is, you know, the largest source of emissions in the world. And so I think that sort of experience opened our eyes to there might be better ways to be able to decarbonize that are, to, to most people, contrarian and just so counterintuitive. Um, but the oil and gas industry has has lived it and has done it over the course of the last two decades. Um, and so coming into the energy transition for us, 
um, we never really wanted to subscribe to the same playbook that everybody else was going by, which is we just need more wind and solar. Um, we always kind of said there, there's probably a better way to actually achieve these goals faster, cheaper, and with just more reliable power. Um, and so that, that's kind of what got us into the energy transition space in the first place. Um, you know, we started it with renewable natural gas with taking our Kia public in 2020, which we then sold to BP at the end of last year. Um, and so net power is just a continuation of it where we're really now focusing on the grid. And I think most people really have just surrendered to this notion of we're going to decarbonize with just more solar and more wind. And we're sitting here today with a technology like net power. And there's a bunch of other technologies out there that are counterintuitive to the to, to most people's beliefs of what decarbonization looks like. Most people's idea of decarbonization means moving away from fossil fuels. But then you have something like net power and other forms of post-combustion carbon capture and other forms of power um, like that that run so counter to that because you're actually increasing your use of fossil fuels. But I think for us, it's it's always been less about the source of the energy and really just the emissions in the back end that, that people really should be focused on. Um, but I think certainly one of those challenges today is everybody's so preoccupied with the source of the energy. Where is that energy coming from? And not really, really focusing on what really matters if we're really talking about decarbonization, which is what's the emissions on the back end? What's the carbon intensity of the energy that's being generated? Um, so we, we think that creates like a huge opportunity for folks that aren't willing to be contrarian per se, but really be focused on what really matters at the end of the day. I know there's a whole lot of emotions involved in the energy transition on are you renewable, are you not renewable, are you against climate change, are you for climate change? Um, and I think as the world continues to embrace decarbonization, there's folks that fall into that dogmatic camp of we're just going to do wind and solar, right? Um, and I think that's where like the huge opportunity lays for a lot of companies and a lot of investors is in if you can take a very data-driven approach and actually start looking at what really matters, which is carbon intensity, to make those investment decisions over the long term, I think I think our, our belief is in the long term, like the science and the data will prevail. Um, and so it's really just working through the noise around emotions around energy transition and what that means to people. Uh, yeah, the, the wind and solar playbook seems... Uh to be challenged uh, today's day and age where you have a rising rate environment and you know the the list of projects gets longer and longer in the queue trying to connect them into the to the grid um certainly uh, pay, pay, uh, co uh causes some challenges uh for for developers but so as you as you think about uh the type of decarbonization that you're talking about how do you see it impacting america's net zero goals and then potentially global goals yeah, so I think at, at, at the highest level, like decarbonization is, is really about decarbonization of the grid, just decarbonization of electricity, right? Everything's moving towards the grid, you know, transportation, principally transportation with EVs. Um, and so when people really do think about decarbonization, they're, they're talking about decarbonization of power. Um, and I think one of the things that, that's so challenging is, you know, for the last hundred years, the only two things that have really mattered in terms of energy selection have been reliability and affordability. Those have been the two pillars. And now all of a sudden we have a third criteria, which is the carbon intensity or the cleanliness of this. Um, and, and I think one of the things that's just, you know, a little bit scary is um, a hyper-focus on the cleanliness of it, 
um, without much regard for what, what are the consequences going to be on affordability or reliability. Um, and so here in the United States, as you continue to see more and more push with the renewables, um, you're starting to see a lot of the system operators of these grids saying, hey, we're running into real issues on future reliability. And you're starting to see affordability, um, you know, become really problematic, especially for those states that you've seen, you know, a lot of just penetration of renewables, you know, states like California, for example. So we've already started to see some of these canaries in the coal mine, um, but, but a lot of states are, are so caught up in, um, and countries too, are so caught up in being able to demonstrate their commitment to the environment um, that uh, unfortunately, like the consumers are going to be ultimately the ones that have to pay um, if we move too fast. Yeah, it's like they're they're setting these goals, trying to be competitive state by state, country by country, and and yet they're trying to implement technologies that are probably not the right technologies for the next 20, 30 years when these goals are intended to be achieved by. Uh, maybe because that technology doesn't exist yet today. Um, but like when you think about some of these net zero goals, like the Paris Accords, like totally reasonable, right? <laughs> uh, you know, or, or what's a more realistic yeah. path forward then? <clears throat> I think long term it definitely is. But I think what, what originally started is goals by 2050. You started to see countries, and now you're starting to see states start to turn this into a competition of who can get to net zero first. Um, and so 2050 becomes 2045. And then that, you know, somebody then says, okay, well, I'm going to get there by 2040. And now you have states and countries saying, I'm going to get there, I'm going to get to net zero by 2030. And it's, it's problematic because it doesn't allow real long-term scalable technology solutions to be developed at the pace that they need to be developed at to be commercially deployable and scalable on their timeline, right? Because they're being asked to compress. And, and really what's happening is, um, they're actually being skipped over because they don't help you meet those goals by 2030. Um, and so I think if, if everybody could just take like a deep breath and almost take a, almost a, a reset of expectations, uh, but also like a reset of like understanding the limitations of the potential solutions we have today, we'll end up in a much, much better place long term. But I think unfortunately, like the, the, the pace and competitiveness with trying to achieve these goals much, much sooner is really going to be to the detriment of like the long-term achievement of, of not just um, these environmental goals, but ensuring that we have reliable, affordable energy along the way. Uh, it just made me think of something like, so the IRA, everyone's touting it as this, you know, wonderful legislation that's going to help accelerate the energy transition and, and incentivize investment, you know, from the private sector, but are they just incentivizing near-term projects or is there anyone actually making a plan to achieve 2050 goals i think um i i, th I think people are trying in earnest to to be able to um achieve these 2050 goals with starting today i mean and i think that that's that's part of the imperative of being able to achieve our 2050 goals is like we have to be starting today but i think what we shouldn't be doing is defining in today what those solutions are going to be and commit to just those solutions. It really needs to be in all of the above approach. And I think everybody has to embrace all of the above until it becomes like crystal clear 
what the winners are going to be. Um, and so, like, you know, obviously one of the challenges with wind and solar is, and, you know, just renewables in general is, is this, this dogmatic view of we can get there 100% with wind and solar. Um, but I think when, when you talk to engineers um, and folks with backgrounds in physics, they'll tell you there's, there's no way that can happen. And so we need to be very open-minded and we need to continue to support these other forms of energy because we're not going to get there with just wind and solar alone. We'll be able to get maybe 20 to 30% of the way there with wind and solar. But anything beyond that is going to be very, very expensive um, and probably to the detriment of achieving our, our environmental goals when you start to factor in the carbon intensity of things like batteries, right? Um, and so I, there's a lot of education that needs to happen um, with just the broader public around energy. Most people have, in, in the United States have been energy illiterate for, for a long time just because, you know, the, the oil and gas industry has made energy so abundant and affordable. It just hasn't been something that's been top of mind for them. Um, and so now it's top of mind, not because of the reliability or the affordability, but because of the cleanliness. Um, and so people are still taking for granted, like, the affordability piece. And they're still taking uh, for granted the reliability piece. But when you start to see those cracks start to happen, um, as they're starting to happen now and they're going to continue to happen in the future, just continue to see a greater push for renewables onto a grid system. Um, you know, I, I think it's going to swing things back the other way where um, the, the affordability and reliability will become just as important as the carbon intensity of it. So that whole science and education thing is important, I guess, to uh, helping yeah. everyone understand what what a true energy transition might might look like, I guess. Um, all right. Yeah. So my understanding of your business model is it's not like Duke or Dominion, but it's more like uh, McDonald's or Dunkin Donuts, like a, a franchise type model. Um, why, why would you choose this path? Yeah, so so it's it's interesting. So you know, way back in in 2010, when when they invented this cycle, you know, this the cycle had been hadn't been you know ideated on before, and so the company they put patents around this entire cycle. So it's kind of like if you went back to the 1980s and patented the combined cycle, that's essentially what they've done is they've patented this semi-closed loop oxycombustion supercritical CO2 cycle. So. Um, it, it gives us two things. One, it gives us total creative control over the design of the plant. So you've never seen like a standard, a standardized plant design in the thermal power industry. Yeah. Every single plant in the world is essentially bespoke, right? The, the customer picks where they want to get the turbine from. They pick where they want to get the heat exchangers from, the, where they want to get the cooling towers, all that stuff. And so every single one of these plants is bespoke to their needs. And that's both on design and on size. Um, but with net power, we said we're, we're standardizing this plant design so it's going to be modular right it's going to a lot of it can be free, prefabricated as we get into like manufacturing mode which is akin to what you're starting to see the small modular reactor folks do on the nuclear side where you have these blocks the interesting thing about our blocks is our blocks are starting at you know 250 to 300 megawatts so if you want a two gigawatt solution we'll give you a fleet of eight net power plants stacked together um and so the other thing that the ip gives us is it gives us like creative latitude around how do we commercialize this plant. So because we own the IP, if anybody wants to build a net power plant, they come to us and we sell them a license that gives them the right to use our technology to build one of our plants. We're also standing up the entire supply chain for them. So they're not having to go to all of these potential vendors to procure the parts, they just come through us. So we're really centralizing the whole power plant acquisition process through net power and our IP. 
um, and, and part of why the license piece long term is the right way to go is, you know, these, these are expensive plants. These are big plants. You know, our first plant is going to cost around a billion dollars and we'll scale down our costs as we scale up over time. Um, but, you know, I think long term, as you see these plants being like $600 million plants, and when we look at the opportunities that we have, you know, here in the United States, it's close to a thousand net power plants could be deployed to replace the aging coal and gas plants in the country. You know, that's 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 more capital that we could that could be deployed than we'll have on our balance sheet. So it's 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 nearly impossible for us to be able to say we're going to keep this all to ourselves and we're just going to build on and operate. It's going to be a whole lot easier for us to scale if we can just license this and collect our license fees. Um and be able to deploy, you know, more than dozens of these plants per year by, you know, 2030. Um, so that's the plan. And but I think one of the, one of the things that we're doing to really complement the license strategy, is, at least for the early years, is going to be origination, where we're looking at the same maps that that you guys are looking at in Varus, and so we know where you can sequester the CO2. We know where the transmission lines are, we know where the gas pipelines are, we know where the good power markets are. And so we have really good maps that show where the bright spots are, where are the most valuable places to put these plants. In the United States, it's unique because most of the power markets in the country are deregulated, which means anybody can go build the power plant if they want to. And most of these sedimentary basins where you can sequester the CO2, nearly all of them are in deregulated power markets. And so you have this just unique opportunity here in the United States where we could go build a power plant if we want. And just like with oil and gas, we can go secure the subsurface rights from the landowners, partner with the oil and gas companies to sequester the CO2 and sell the power into the grid. Um, that's an opportunity that's not available in most other parts of the world where the state owns the oil and gas and they own the power companies. Um, but here in the United States, the deregulated, um, you know, industry-driven um, market really lends itself to some level of origination, especially for the early projects, to really demonstrate um, the power, no pun intended, of, of what these plants can do. So, so maybe proof of concept broadly needs to be here in the United States before something like this could take off globally, just because of the, the way the infrastructure is set up today. Well, we're already seeing like a ton of interest from folks all over the world, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, Australia, that have the right elements for net power to be economic and successful. And, and you really just, you need three things, right? You need access to gas, the lower the cost, the better. You need a place to store the CO2. And so typically you're in the same sedimentary basins where you're getting that oil and gas from. They also contain formations that are just saline aquifers that are conducive to taking a whole lot of CO2. Um, and then you just need something to do with the power. And so when you kind of scan the, 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 the globe and look at, like, where are the markets where a technology like this makes really, really good sense? You know, in the United States is the largest market. It's, it's the, one of the most attractive markets for it because of the low-cost gas we have here, because of the sedimentary basins to sequester the CO2. And, you know, the United States is the second largest power consumer in the world. Uh, and most of our power consumption is coming from a very, very aging fleet of coal and gas plants that just emit CO2. So it, it, it is like very convenient, but also quite logical to start here in the United States. And then you have programs like the 45Q that are huge incentives to sequester where the federal government will pay you $85 for each ton of CO2 that you're capturing and sequestering. So the United States is amazing. Western Canada, Alberta is great. The Middle East is amazing. 
Southeast Asia is nascent, but very promising. Australia, again, is a, is a really interesting one. You know, I think the, the one that's most interesting that's probably surprising to people is Europe. Europe is challenging. And, and it's mostly because Europe has a gas problem, right? Um, and I think that was more self-inflicted and probably unintentional. But uh, they're, they're having a really hard time getting access to low-cost gas because they kind of shut off themselves from development of it uh, a few years ago in the name of the environment. Um, yeah, something uh, they, they may be regretting a touchdown, but we'll see how the winter goes. They got was fortunately warm last winter, so not as much gas was needed. Um, you know, you, you, you just mentioned a bunch about the, the carbon capture aspect of the net power plant, obviously, you know, one of the unique drivers of, of the system. Uh, there, there are some out there, though, that suggest carbon capture is not the answer to uh, the energy transition or decarbonization because it it still allows for the production of fossil fuels. And so what, what would you say to folks uh, like that you know, as as you describe the you know the benefits of the plan. Yeah, I I think um when so you can look at it through two lenses. Like the first one, when you when you take a very realistic and sober view of how we're going to actually be able to achieve our net zero ambitions, it's it's nearly impossible in my mind that we can get there with just renewables alone. So we're going to have to do these other things. They may not be as ideal as wind or solar. Um, you know, short duration wind or solar, but they're still so much better than the status quo. And I think if and if we don't embrace things that make meaningful progress but but aren't perfect, if we don't embrace those, you know, we're going to end up in a much much worse place down the road. Um, so you know, I, I think progress is so much more important today than trying to achieve perfection. And I think today everybody's trying to achieve perfection. I think even for me, like if if we could get to a grid that was 100% wind and solar without any issues to affordability or reliability, I would be all for it. And I'd probably be starting a wind or solar company to be going after it. But I think when I look out 10 or 15, 20 years and look at what's possible, CCUS is imperative, mostly because natural gas and coal power generation is going to be part of the grid just because there's nothing that comes close to it on reliability or affordability. And if you're able to capture those emissions and still maintain that affordability, and obviously you're still retaining that reliability because of the, the powers coming from coal and natural gas, it really is like the best of both worlds. It really is what we call that energy trifecta. Um, but again, you know, we're, we're still dealing with very dogmatic views about energy but because I think we're still in this euphoria phase where we haven't seen renewable penetration really get to the point where it becomes super problematic to the grid. But it really starts to happen as you start to see more states get to where, like, California is today. You start to see more blackouts and brownouts. Um, but then I think, like, the other thing about TC TCUS that's really, really interesting, especially here in the United States, you know, just as the United States is the largest producer of oil and natural gas in the world and the benefit it's provided to our economy and to the consumers here at home, um, the United States is even more blessed with storage capacity to sequester the CO2. So there's really no limitations on storage capacity. If we replaced every coal and gas plant in the United States with either a net power plant or something with post-combustion carbon capture, we're still going to have something like 300 times more storage capacity than we will ever need. And so I think if people could really take stock of just how geologically blessed we are with the ability to actually do CCUS, 
a lot of countries in the world just aren't able to do it because they don't have the rock. They don't have the gas. Um, it's a huge natural resource that we really need to take advantage of in order to be able to achieve our decarbonization goals at a much, much lower cost than just about every other nation on the planet. So we kind of owe it to ourselves to take full advantage of the natural resources we have, just like we've taken full advantage of them for the last century with the coal, with the oil, with the natural gas. Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess you sort of answered my next question is, as you think about the energy landscape in the future, how does it look, you know, in terms of uh, fossil fuels still being in the mix? And certainly in North America, you would expect that it would it would need to be or it should be um, in the next 20, 30, 40 years. Um, all right, so we're running yeah. up on time here. Um, but so I want you to take out your crystal ball, and uh, which I know you only use for good, I'm sure. Uh, tell us, tell us, what are some of the other technologies you're interested in, or that are interesting to you today, that that you'll have a that will have a big impact on our uh, energy economy in the future. Ooh, other, other than other than something like net power, right? Uh, I mean, this this is this is kind of scary. Like, we don't really see anything else coming down the pike that that could be a potential silver bullet or something that could like meaningfully move the needle. Um, in terms of being able to decarbonize or being able to provide meaningful new energy. I know people are still super excited about nuclear. People are st still super, you know, nuclear fission. People yeah. are very excited about the promise of fusion. Um, but, you know, that, that's always 20, 30 years away. I think, like, the, the, the most impactful things we could do today are, are existing technologies that we have and just taking a much more pragmatic approach to energy in the energy transition. Things like being able to replace the remaining coal power generation in the world with natural gas is actually like the is actually more impactful than electrifying every vehicle in on the planet with wind and solar power. Um, so that that just gives you like the sense of scale and magnitude of just using existing technologies and just existing solutions that we have today and how meaningful it could be to decarbonize. And, and I know a, a lot of that isn't sexy, but, but a lot of that is just common sense. And I think that that's, that's just one of the, the bigger challenges that, that re actually really creates opportunities for investors is just very common sense based approaches to energy in the energy transition. I think a lot of that will prevail and, and you're going to see a lot of folks, skip over the common sense things like switching from coal to gas in favor of trying to find new ways to improve, you know, the, the capacity of, of solar PV and making these wind turbines even larger or trying to shrink down nuclear to become even smaller. Um, but I think it just a, a, a very just like a common sense approach to all of it makes a whole lot of sense. And, and the thing with common sense is, it's not like a one-size-fits-all. Like, what works great for Texas isn't going to work great for Illinois. What works great for Massachusetts isn't going to work in other places. And actually, what works in most other states doesn't really work in Massachusetts. Um, <laughs> and so I think, like, you guys I think love every fuel state oil. really needs... You just love fuel oil in Massachusetts. You don't want any new natural yeah, gas my... pipelines. You... <laughs> yeah, my, 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 mom's house in, my mom's house just south of Boston, it's still, we still get that fuel oil truck, you know, every few weeks during the winter because they won't let us build natural gas pipelines. So it's the most toxic, deadly thing. And, and her sons are in the largest gas company in, in North America, and we can't build a pipeline to our house. The irony. But, yeah, I, I think a lot of just, like, 
very common sense based approaches is like it's not a technology it's actually like the antithesis of a technology but it, it they really are like the most impactful ways to be able to achieve both like the decarbonization goals but also just like the energy security that that i think a lot of people a lot of people today have taken for granted um but uh you know that that's quickly coming in in front of us that you know we, we can't really sleep on energy affordability because if we lose affordability that's when everything else goes out the window. That's when you go back to coal real quick, right? And that's where you start to see major steps back in achieving our environmental goals when you start to lose sight of the two other pieces of sustainability. Sustainability isn't just carbon intensity. Sustainability is you need to be doing something that is sustainable for the next 30, 40 years. And, and for it to be sustainable, it needs to be affordable and it needs to be reliable. Because if you lose either of those two things, the clean piece goes right out the window and in you know germany will be the first one to tell you what happens when when you know the the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining they're, they're turning on their coal plants unfortunately so um it's a this is a challenge for everybody but that's what happens when you institute a new pillar after the entire world is built upon just two the affordability and reliability and it's going to take a right. while to get that third pillar fully stood up and it's just really important we're not knocking down the other two as a consequence of really focusing on that new third one. Yeah, that, that affordability really comes into risk, I think, as, as folks trying to achieve the carbon intensity reduction goals. You know, if there's if there's one thing I've learned from covering oil and gas all, all these years, it's to never sell those engineers short. Uh, they're they're going to come up with some solutions to continue to uh, improve uh, the way we live. So I will look forward to that. Um, Danny, thank you so much for your time uh, here on the show today. And um, for everyone listening, tune in next week uh, on December 13th, or next week, next month, December 13th, for our, for our next issue of Morning Energy Live. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thanks, everybody.